two years after my mom died. And you know, the crazy thing is Jackie had gotten sober. She was, she had been so finally, she had been sober a, a year and she was doing amazing. And we were like talking and our conversations were so positive and loving. And we kept talking about a visit. She, she had just moved to Colorado with her husband. So between her and my other sisters and my dad, we were like, let's, let's plan a visit. But because of COVID, we were all nervous, right? So, cause her immune system wasn't great, honestly. So we just kept putting it off. And, and I hate that because, you know, like we, we kept talking about it for that year, but it was a surprise text and call because she had been sober. Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. We have Dina Gashman. She is a Pulitzer Center grantee and award-winning journalist and a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Vox, and Texas Monthly, Teen Vogue, and more. She writes her own books. She's also a ghostwriter. Today, we will be talking primarily about her book, So Sorry for Your Loss, which she wrote after the death of her mother and sister. And that will be primarily our conversation today. So welcome, Dina. Thank you, Kendra. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here and for sharing your story, not only through your book, but now here in our conversation so that our listeners can get a feeling of what you've gone through and your learnings because your book not only shares your story, but you be, you, you are a researcher mm-hmm. as well. So you can see all these glimpses of research you've added and sprinkled through the book as you're mm-hmm. also sharing your story. So let's first talk about you and where you live now, where you grew up, a little bit of your family structure, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Sounds good. So I am now near Austin, Texas, and I'm born and raised in Texas. But when I was 18, I was like, get me out of here. So I like ran as fast as I could to California and thought I would be there forever. But I went to college there. I went to grad school there, stayed there for several years. And then really after my mom died was when I really felt the pull to come back to Texas because my dad's here, my other two sisters. And we had a son who was, um, he was like 13 months old at the time. So um, I went from never thinking I would come back to Texas to being very happy to be back. And I've always wanted to be a writer that was, you know, I studied English in college and you really started journalism many, many years ago, but it just, it took a lot of time to get to the point where I'm writing my own books and I'm doing journalism. It took a lot of, you know, waiting tables and, and things like that. And then as far as family, so I... I grew up in Fort Worth and Houston, and then my parents were like high school sweethearts and had four daughters. So I'm the oldest of the four. And then my sister, Jackie, who's the third, she's the one I write about in the book because she suffered for years from alcoholism and she died two years after my mom in 2021. So 
we were this house like full of girls and full of energy and full of, you know, just a lot of um, fighting over hairbrushes <laughs> and stuff like that. And then now it's, it's my dad and then my other two sisters and me. Are your other two sisters also in Texas? Yes. We're all yes. So, so now I have my son's near his cousins. It's great. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about your dynamics then of your sisters. Mm-hmm. We're kind of going to be jumping around. So it's four of you. Tell us the, in, the age difference. So you're the oldest. Tell us the age difference and the names of your other sisters aside from Jackie as well, please. So I'm the oldest. My sister Amy's three years younger than me. Jackie was, I think, three years younger than Amy. And then our sister Catherine. So Catherine and I, there's a 12-year difference. So it's pretty big. So it felt bigger when we were younger. And then at a certain point, it, I mean, we made well three years apart. Yeah. So it shrinks. But yeah. Yeah. So between me and the youngest is 12 years. In your growing up years, then you left uh, to California then at the age of 18. Mm-hmm. How did the dynamics of your, you know, with your sisters change through that time? That's nobody's asked me that. That's a good question. So my, we were all very close. Um, and I think with Jackie, I think what changed the most is like, we didn't really realize what was happening early on. I think a lot of people who have alcoholics or or people who struggle with substance abuse probably relate to this. Like for a while I was like, well, I guess she's just young and she's kind of being wild and she'll figure it out eventually. So but I do think probably in my 20s, there started to become a rift because it just, she was getting worse and worse. And I just didn't understand it. And I, I don't think any of us truly understood what alcoholism was. So there was a lot of anger and frustration and just really being bewildered and um, a lot of really tough emotions that went along with that. So it took, it took me a very long time to, to understand what really alcoholism is and that she wasn't that, like it changed her personality. Mm-hmm. So it really, but yeah, probably in my early twenties, it became really, really tough, and there were some hard years. The uh, what you're sharing right now regarding the stigma around addiction mm-hmm. and it not being seen as a illness for some people, right? And therefore, that changes how we interact mm-hmm. with people that are dealing with addiction, right? We think it's yeah. in their control, and so it right. do, it can create this rift. There was a, a an anecdote you shared regarding you being in New York City. Your sister mm-hmm. lived in New York City at that time, and you kind of seeing her, but not. Can you share a little bit about that? Because that that gives a little of mm-hmm. a glimpse of even the dynamics that can occur. Yeah. yeah. So that was a really hard year. That was the I lived in New York for one year. This was after graduate school and. It was really the first time Jackie and I were in the same city since I was in high school, right? Because she stayed in Texas for a really long time, and then she moved to New York long before I did. So that one year, I was, you know, able to have lunch with her. But the problem was, I, you know, she was so um, bad at that point for that year that, like, she would cancel or flake, you know, just not even show up. We'd have dinner plans, and she just, you know, wouldn't answer texts for a day. It was really hard, and my anxiety was pretty... um, skyrocketing at that time. So the story I tell in the book, it's, um, it's a chapter specifically about her. She's kind of throughout the book. This happened one day where I was, I worked at a restaurant in Manhattan and I lived in Brooklyn. My sister lived in Queens. And so anyone who's been to New York city probably understands the randomness of running into your sister on a street. Um, and we're, you know, in a 
place where neither of you live. So I was going into the restaurant and I saw her like half a block away crossing Fifth Avenue. And instead of going up to her and saying something, I just basically let her pass. And, you know, it's something that haunted me for years. I never told her that. And I just, I knew in that moment that like, if I, cause it was at a point where, where things were contentious with us. Cause she had flaked on so many lunches and things. So I, um, I knew that if I talked to her, it might trigger me. And then I had to go wait tables and serve sushi <laughs> for like hours. And, and so I just, I didn't want to like lose it and lose my composure. So I just let her walk past, which it's very sad, right? I mean, that's my own little sister, but I give myself a little bit of, you know, understanding because, you know, I, I was trying to protect myself. Right. Um, but it is a sad thing. And I, you know, I'm sure people would understand out there that it's just when, when those relationships become so fractured, like you, you have at a certain point, you have to kind of watch out for your own part. So yeah. that's what happened. Now, how, at what point did you come to that realization yourself and giving yourself that grace? And what was your process in giving yourself grace in the dynamics of you and your sister and those mm -hmm. moments in which you also had to, you know, safeguard yourself? You have yeah. a family. So mm -hmm. how did you navigate that journey for yourself? The thing that really helped me is I went to Al-Anon, which, you know, Al-Anon's a support group for um, like siblings or someone, you know, a spouse or somebody that loves an alcoholic. And so I finally in New York went to an Al-Anon meeting because I just realized like, I cannot handle this. I don't understand my emotions. Like I was just a mess. So it was very helpful. I think that was the beginning of me understanding, you know, and they teach you in Al-Anon um, detached with love. And it's a way of allowing yourself to say like, Hey, I'm going to get off the phone right now. And I love you, you know, and not feel guilty that you're like, not talking to somebody. And so that was the beginning of me understanding not only that, but also trying to understand my sister a little bit more instead of just being so angry. Cause I think my other sisters felt the same way that we were angry at her. We, we saw it as like, she look what she's doing to our parents, right? Our parents were so supportive and loving and we were just had so much anger. So I think that was the beginning of me understanding, Hey, this is a disease. Like this is a disease like any other. She's not making this choice. Like, yes, she can choose to go into a liquor store, but not really. I mean, it's so complicated. So I also started developing more compassion for her, even though still for years I would get angry. I mean, that's just kind of part of, part of it. And in her journey, she went through time periods of recovery mm -hmm, as yeah. well. And so how different was the dynamic then during her periods of not using alcohol for you? I mean, she was really like a totally different person, like mm. a completely different person. Um, cause she was so, I have her picture right here, but, um, huh. like she was so sweet and loving and funny. And like, so when she was sober and honestly, it wasn't often, like she would go in and out of detoxes and rehabs and her periods of sobriety were pretty short, honestly. Um, like I think once she went two years, but we would talk all the time and we would laugh and like she would go home to visit and see her niece who was a baby at the time. And so it was just a totally different thing. And then when she was drinking or really bad, like you didn't know if she was going to be belligerent. There was, you know, their personalities just tend to completely shift. And so it was really hard in those moments. Like we all gained this very keen awareness of like the minute I would get on the phone with her, I could just tell, right. Even if she's like, no, I'm sober. I can just hear, like, I'd hear one syllable and be like, okay, you know, mm. you just kind of intuit it. So yeah, it was a totally different relationship if she was drinking or sober. Oh, okay. Thank you for sharing the dynamics. And mm -hmm. I know it still very fresh. And since her passing, mm -hmm. 
Thank you for sharing that. The journey of your mom, mm -hmm. then let's go jump into that. Okay. So she struggled with stage four colon cancer. Yes. Tell us about her journey in her health. So she was diagnosed um, in 2015. It was actually like six weeks before my wedding. <laughs> so very good timing. Um, so I didn't, you know, I was like, do I cancel the wedding? I don't know what to do. So it was very scary, right? I mean, it was just, it's the kind of thing you don't want to hear. And I don't think, you know, you hear stage four, obviously that's not good, but I don't think any of us knew that stage four colon cancers, it's hard to survive that for long. Um, but we were sort of in denial about that. And we were like, we're going to have a party in a year and say she beat it. And, you know, that's kind of the mode we were in. And she, and she dragged herself to my wedding, even though she started chemo like a week before or something. And I know, you know, just your story and your mom and you know, she was so beautiful. I love that picture on your website. Um, but you know, so she was, she dragged herself to my wedding, but it was a tough, I think it was about four years that she was pretty much on constant chemo unless she was sick. So she was in and out of hospitals and um, I didn't write much at that time. I just, it was too hard to, I, I just didn't know it, it was too much. I think it was just the emotions were too much. And so I had a office job, like a writing office job. So I was doing that kind of writing, but um, so she was like in and out of the hospital. She, you know, was on really strong chemo. I mean, she didn't have a great quality of life, but she would have her days when she's like, let's go to lunch. Or, you know, she got time with her grandchildren, which was her whole reason for living. I think we became second second class citizens to her, which totally fine. But yeah, it's one of those things I, I think with cancer, people don't realize often what somebody dies from is like a complication due to the cancer. So what happened with my mom is she, in 2018, she was like set to try an experimental procedure. And we knew that like she had, you know, we knew that like, okay, maybe a year we'll have, but then all of a sudden I had just been visiting and I went home and like a couple days later, I got a call that her colon had torn. And so that's when the doctors were like, there's, she's got, she's going on hospice. So I, so it happened slowly, but very fast, right? Because we thought we'd have more time than we did. So once it happened, it was, you know, very quick and very hard. And I write about hospice in the book and, um, you know, our at-home hospice was, was, you know, excruciating, <laughs> excruciatingly painful. What, what made it painful for you to have the hospice at at home. Was it because, uh, yeah, share that, those little bits of information from your, your experience. Cause ours was completely different. Okay. So that's, that's why, I, yeah, ours okay. was, I still keep in touch with her first hospice nurse. Oh, that's amazing. I've actually had her on the podcast as oh, well. So, so cool. it was I'm a very different, yeah, it's a very different, uh, experience what we had yeah. versus what you had. So what, what was it for you guys that was not, uh, right? I think that, and I don't blame the nurses for this because I know that the system kind of sets them up to like house to house to house, go to, you know, and get, be there for 10 minutes. I think for us, like, I'm glad we brought her home just because she had been in the hospital for maybe 10 days before hospice. And we were just like, okay, well, let's get her out of here. Like it was, you know, depressing. So it was, it was good to be at her home and things like that, but we were totally unprepared. Like I thought that the, there would be a nurse there most of the time giving her medication. And yet my sisters and I sat at the table with like the orientation nurse. And she was like, okay, so you're going to be giving her morphine every two hours. And, and we were just like, totally like deer in headlights, like, wait, what? <laughs> so the whole thing was just like me, my anxiety levels were just crazy. Um, so that was horrible. Just the fact that, okay, I guess we have to do this. And my son was with my husband in California at the time. So I still lived there. So that was 
I don't know how I would have yeah, done that's, it. Otherwise. Yeah, I want to, I'll ask you about that. Remind, I want to make sure I ask you about that. Uh, traveling back and forth, but okay. wasn't there like an incident too with the medication because something that they couldn't find? Was there something that one of the medications got, or you guys were trying to find it or something because one nurse had put it at another place? Was that correct? No, well, it was our calling. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. But yes, so there was one. I mean, we were just our brains were so fried. I mean, it was every two hours we eventually got a night nurse because I mean we had to sleep. But every two hours we were doing this and we were just so frazzled. And there was one day where we just could not find the morphine and so my sisters and I were like going through trash bags like I mean we were literally outside like combing through trash and, and we're just because they couldn't get the medication there quick enough and like the last thing you want is for your mother to feel pain so it was horrible we found it and I think one of us had just like left it on a table so we weren't mad at each other because we we're like we either of us could have done it there's a lot of humor in the book because I feel like humor is very it can be very healing and and helpful even the title one of the titles of your Thing. What is it? The casserole, something, and a bucket of, oh, here, chicken soup, gumbo, and a bucket of KFC. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah so go ahead, continue. Yeah. No, that's part of the humor. Um, and so the hospice chapter has a lot of humor in it, believe it or not, because the night of the orientation, the hospice nurse, I, I don't know if she was trying to say that she knows grief, but she, she said, she told us that her whole family had been murdered by her brother-in-law. And so my sister and I were, it doesn't sound funny when I say it now, but like, and in the moment, it certainly wasn't funny. But looking back later, we just laughed. We were like, this is so absurd. Like, what else can we do with this? But just laugh about it. Cause it's just yeah, so she, unbelievable. She was trying to find maybe that common ground mm -hmm. of letting you know she had experience with loss that was yes. personal, but yes. yet- it was just too much information yeah. for what you guys needed at that <laughs> yes, time. Yes, it was. Right? Yeah, I was like, my yeah. mom's laying like 10 feet away. Can you not yes. talk about yes. that? Um, so that, yeah, the whole thing was just really hard. But like I said, I don't, I'd be curious to hear more about your experience because I, I don't blame the nurses. Like, it's not like they were mean. And the night nurse that came, her name was Angel, which is very appropriate, but she was a dream. I mean, she was just absolutely wonderful. So I, I don't blame them. I think just hospice is hard. It's hard, it's hard for, for anybody going through that. And the part that it also makes it hard is that depending on what type of insurance coverage each family has, mm -hmm. then yeah. that would also determine how many hours of hospice care you get for your loved yeah. one and then how much you have to then as a family mm -hmm. be there for them. Yes. So let's talk about your being in California, your mm -hmm. parent, your mom being ill this back and forth mm -hmm. and family you know dynamics that you did have your husband being able to take care of your child but then you also have a work mm -hmm. tell us about that the juggling back and forth of that period of time oh it makes me like tired just even thinking about it it was really hard because my son so yeah so my mom was diagnosed before my wedding my son was born in 2017 so once I was able to travel with him I think I can't remember how is it three months maybe um I was back and forth a lot. And so he got his miles as an infant because <laughs> I knew I was like, I want him to be with my mom as much as possible. And so I flew with him a lot. Um, and I think that was part of the start of me, like feeling more rooted to Texas again, because I was coming back so much. And, but I would go back like at least every two months with him. Cause it was just so, you know, I just didn't know how much time she had. And so we went back pretty often. And then the only other time she came to California is when he was born and she again dragged herself. I was like, mom, you don't, like she was not doing well. And, um, I was like, mom, you don't 
I have to come. And she's like, she's like, if your father has to drag me on the airplane, I am coming to meet my grandson. So God bless her. She came and she wasn't doing well, but, um, but you know, just juggling that whole thing was, it was very hard. Like I had a full-time job with like an hour and a half commute and a little one, and then a mom who was sick. And it just, I, you know, I write about this in the book, but I, I wanted to handle it. Right. Like I think a lot of women especially have this thing of like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to handle everything. I'm going to take care of everyone. And, and so I thought I was doing that for a while, you know, take care of so much. And then my youngest sister, Catherine lived in the same city. So she did a lot. Like my other two sisters weren't there in the city. So Catherine took on a lot of the, like taking mom to appointments or sitting with her, you know, when we weren't there, but yeah, I just started to feel really depleted and it was tough. Um, trying to give energy to my son and, and then also handle my mom. So just, you know, a lot of tears and things like that, but I didn't go into therapy about it till maybe eight months after my mom died. And then I finally was like, okay, this is, this is necessary. (laughs) Okay. So aside from having gone to Al-Anon when your sister then was dealing with addiction and Mm -hmm. you going in while you were at graduate school and stuff and starting that, you didn't use therapy at all till after your mom's passing. Is that, is that correct? Or have, did you ever use therapy for yourself in between that time? I had gone in between. I went in my, it was, I think it was after college. I think I was having like one of those twenties existential crises (laughs) that I look back now and I'm like, wow, that was really silly. Um, like what's my purpose? You know? So I went then, and then I went another time after a really horrible breakup that was, you know, I mean, it was a seven-year relationship, so I definitely needed therapy. There's grief grief. there too, yeah. And you talk about, you you mentioned other types of grief in in one of of your chapters. I forget which one it is, but mm -hmm. go ahead, continue with that story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had gone before in life, and so it's not that I didn't believe in it. I just thought, I, I, I got this, you know, I can handle this and do the laundry and get the groceries and all that stuff. But eventually I think I just realized like I was so, I was snapping all the time. I was really agitated. Um, I think I think it's pretty common in grief. And I just had zero patience for like, I had patience for my son, even though sometimes I would, you know, when I found myself snapping at a two-year-old, I was like, that's not, mm. <laughs> that's not the kind of mom I want to be. Like, obviously moms, you know, lose it sometimes, but like, I just was too agitated. And so I, I realized, I think I need to go talk to somebody. And it, it took me, you know, I had to try one person and realize that wasn't right and then go to somebody else, you know, to find the right fit. But, um, and I'm still in now, I think in the book I said, I, I stopped, but now I'm back because <laughs> I love it. I think it's just as much as you can love therapy. I just feel like it's, you know, as a person to continue to grow and continue to understand yourself and the world, it's, it's valuable. Yes. Agreed. It, it It's one of those tools that is out there for mm-hmm. anybody in, depending on where you are in your life, you can always go back to it. It's like a tune up. (laughs) It's a tune up. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about when your mom was ill. Your sister was still living. She was in New York Mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah. Was she ever able to come and visit your mom while she was sick in those last, in, in the last, and did she, was she able to attend the funeral and those kind of things. All this, of course, a lot of these, all of this is in your book, but yeah. just, if you can just touch on those two questions. I'm trying to think, I I know she saw my mom when she was sick, I think in the first, maybe two years, but I think the last year or so, or even two years, I don't think she saw her at all. And that was part of like, part of, you know, I still had anger and all these kind of things. And I'm like, our mom is 
sit, like dying, right? Like, why are you, why can't you get into your rehab and get sober? And, but I think part of Jackie, what she was doing is, you know, she didn't have coping skills. Like usually when people start drinking it, I mean, probably a preteen is what she was like, you don't have coping skills. So I, I don't, I think she was, didn't know what else to do. Right. So I don't think she saw her much. And then for the funeral, she was really bad when my mom died. Like she was really, it wasn't like, you know, people say, oh, they're a functioning alcoholic. Like when she was really in it, like it was not her. And it was just, you know, she'd like, get lost. She would be lost sometimes and yes. not come home for days. Right. Yes. Yeah. She would fall asleep on lawns and I mean, just bad. And I, and I think of alcoholism as like having stages like cancer. Like if some people are alcoholics and it's always hard, but maybe they can get it, get sober for the rest of their life. I think my sister had like stage four mm-hmm. alcoholism. So when my mom went into hospice, we basically said, you know, you come here to say goodbye to her. And then you got to go back to New York because she was really bad. And all of us were in such a heightened state of anxiety. Even my dad who adored, you know, we all loved her, but we just had to say like, you come and say bye and then you go back. And so her husband and her best friend, her best friend was sober and we love her and we're still in touch. And they're just all, I'm still in touch with my brother-in-law, like they're wonderful people. So they flew her out and she came, you know, during hospice right before, is it the night before? I think it was the night before my mom died, which is you know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I think in hospice, sometimes there's strange things. Like I think my mom waited for Jackie to come to die. And, and then I think she also waited for her grandkids to leave the house. Um, because mm. I think it was the morning. Yeah. It was the morning after Jackie was there. So she basically came and said goodbye. And, and it was hard for us to see her cause she was very frail and, you know, but I got to hug her and that was the last time I saw her. I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be the last time I saw her. So your sister then comes. That's the last time that you see her was and in 2019 before your mom died two years later then you get a text when you're in an airplane yeah of all places, uh, of all places. and during during a time in during in the middle of still was that still when we were really restricted in a lot of restrictions for flying and stuff during that time in 2021 it was 2021 so we you know we were wearing masks and and all of that yeah and so you get this text and you share more details, of course, in your book, but mm-hmm. tell us the circumstances of Jackie's passing and where you were in your life at that moment. So that was, yeah, it was two years after my mom died. And, you know, the crazy thing is Jackie had gotten sober. She was, she had been so, finally, she had been sober a, a year and she was doing amazing. And we were like talking and our conversations were so positive and loving and we kept talking about a visit. She she had just moved to Colorado with her husband. So between her and my other sisters and my dad, we were like, let's let's plan a visit. But because of COVID, we were all nervous, right? So because her immune system wasn't great, honestly. So we just kept putting it off. And and I hate that because, you know, like we we kept talking about it for that year, but it was a surprise text and call because she had been sober. Even though I did know that what happened was she was sober for a year. And then we we knew in that February that she had started drinking again because she basically went MIA, which was kind of always what happened. But this time was different because she wouldn't even she wasn't even talking to my dad, and she always talked to him no matter what. So it had been a couple of days, and I was in Florida with visiting my in laws, and I was worried in Florida, just thinking like Jackie's gone again. But I figured this has happened before; she'll turn up. But I was still worried. Um, but yeah, we landed in um, back in Texas, and. I had a text from my sister, Amy, saying, I can't believe this is real. And everything in me knew 
really what she was talking about, but I, you know, I was my brain and heart and everything was not letting me process it. So long story short, I called Amy and she said, Jackie was found in a, in a hotel, a motel, um, and just drank too much. And so it was horrible. And, um, you know, the difference with my mom and with Jackie was one of the main things was I remember this overwhelming feeling of like, I can't believe we have to do this again. Like, I can't believe like we have just gone through the most profound, painful grief with my mom. And we're just emerging after two years, like kind of just tiptoeing into life again. And now we have to do it again. Cause I knew what was, I knew what it entailed and, and we all did. And we were just, I was just bracing myself. So it was, it was different in that way, but cause we knew like all the bureaucracy too, that you have to pick a coffin and like, this is so morbid, but like, this is a grief yeah. podcast. Yeah, so no, it is. No, it's true. No, the, uh, the administrate, the business of mm -hmm. the business, I yeah. call it all this kind of stuff that has to happen, which does also doesn't really allow sometimes that space for the actual emotions. Mm -hmm. Cause you're yeah. just in this, you know, like you said, getting coffin, getting mm -hmm. the funeral site, this, yeah. like all these different decisions that have to be made that yeah. then your your feelings kind of are put on the back burner until you kind mm -hmm. of finish all this kind of stuff. And yeah, depending yeah. on on the type of death, then there could be like, then you have to do an estate sale or then you have to do this or then mm -hmm. it's just so much. So I can, I can relate. So, so then you go through it just two years later all mm -hmm. over again. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, I was really worried about my dad, of course, because you know, he lost the love of his life. They were together since they were like 16 and then his, his daughter. And so, and he had said to us, like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this one, which is, you know, very scary to hear from your parent who you adore. Luckily, I mean, my dad, after my mom died, he went straight into grief therapy and he still loves his grief group. So he's thankfully not kind of hiding from this. He's, he's full on, like, let's talk about it. So I'm very lucky for that. But yeah, he, he was, I was really scared that he like, you know, not that he would harm himself, but that his personality would completely change. But he's, you know, obviously he's sad. Of course we all are, but he's, he's doing amazing. So yeah, it was, a, it was a, a tough transition, but then it was strange because I, I write about this in the book, but when Jackie died, I almost like it, after the initial, like being so distraught and then the funeral and like just the devastation of those first few weeks, I kind of went on like autopilot or something. I was, I almost felt like numb. And then I would feel guilty and be like, why am I not so distraught? Like what, it's only been two months. Like, why am I like laughing at a movie? What's wrong with me? And then, I, and then her birthday came around and then I completely lost it. So I was like, okay, I'm just, <laughs> you know, living my life and, and it's still there. But I think that's common in grief too, is like feeling numbness, right? Or even if it's not numbness, it's like, you're just not distraught every minute, but the feelings are always in there. And that's the thing. Yes. And the reality is that with her and you, you, you made that comparison regarding addiction and then cancer, right? You get a diagnosis. So in your mom's case, you get the diagnosis, you grieve during the diagnosis. Yeah. Actually, this could be for any illness. Mm -hmm. You grieve during the diagnosis. So with your sister, you grieve during her first bad episode or, uh, or realization that mm -hmm. she's an addict, then you grief throughout her journey. Every, yeah. Oh, she's sober. Now she's not. Mm -hmm. Oh, she's sober. Now she's not yeah. all this back and forth and yo-yoing, mm -hmm. right. Of emotions yeah. throughout her life. And then the, her death. So it would not be surprising that mm -hmm. you had that kind of moment of not 
believing because you'd already been through a lot of grief in her own journey. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's probably true because there was up for all those years. It's, um, I write about an ambiguous loss where it's you're grieving. Yeah, that's the one. That's the chapter I wanted to ask you. Yeah, because you you ch- yeah explain what that means, the ambiguous loss. So that's something I did not know about until I started writing a book. And I actually interviewed a friend of mine who her father several years ago was kidnapped by Al-Qaeda, all things to happen. And he was held prisoner for several years and eventually killed. But when he was prisoner, I interviewed her about this. And she said she learned about ambiguous loss, which is you're grieving the change in a relationship or the death isn't, or the grief isn't triggered by a death. And so with her dad, like she wouldn't know if he was alive or dead, you know, and then, and, and she didn't know how to articulate that because there was no funeral, there was no finality. So when she told me about it, I looked it up and then I was like, oh, that's what I felt for Jackie all those years. Like, like you're saying, like all the up and down and the yo-yo and, you know, grieving, like, the sister I had or this, or the relationship I wanted so badly with her. And so that was, that was really helpful for me to learn. And I interviewed the woman who coined the term in the seventies. And she told me that she came up with it because she said having a term for something helps people cope with, with their grief. And so I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. And it definitely, when I learned that it was kind of, I don't know if it was a relief to me, but it, it helped. It helped me, it helped me understand this jumble of emotions that I was so confused by. I had never heard the term ambiguous loss in the years I've been doing the podcast, but I've always talked about, you know, grief happening at different stages and transitions in life. But the, the, the coin term of ambiguous makes so much sense. When I, Mm -hmm. when I read that, it just made so much sense. Now let's talk about the dynamics and relationships and how you continue your relationship with your sister and your mom mm-hmm. now that they've died, as well as how you still include them. Your son is how old is he now? He's about to turn six. So he's young. He was really young when his mm-hmm. grandmother died, and then he really never really knew his aunt. So yeah. can you please share how you continue? that relationship you with them as well as how you continue it with your son having that connection with them. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, one of the things in grief that I've learned and I think most people learn is that the relationship doesn't have to die. Um, and although we'd all rather have our person there with us, you know, there are things you can do to keep that relationship going. So for example, I talk to my mom and sister all the time, Um, and I've said this before, but I feel like my sister kind of helped me write the book, you know, because she was a really creative person and we never, I think I always kind of wanted to collaborate with her because she was so creative. And so when I was writing the book, I would literally just think, or even say out loud, like, what do you think Jackie? And so I I kind of felt this strange force of like, that she was right there with me. So I talked to them and I, I do little things. Like I will tell my son, I try to keep them a lot them alive for him, even though he's not going to remember. I mean, he, he was 13 months old and my mom died. He never met Jackie, but I tell stories or it, even something as small as like, you know, Cece's favorite food. That was my mom's name that her grandkids called her, you know, Cece's favorite food was this, or Cece used to do this. Or one of his favorite things is I talk about how funny my mom was and say a little funny thing. Cause she was hilarious. Um, and I'll say funny phrases or things that she would say. And he's like cracking up and, and he's saying, tell me more, tell me more. Or randomly he'll just be like mommy tell me some more funny things Cece said and it brings me such joy like it's the most wonderful thing because we're both cracking up at things my mom said and he's forming these memories of her that aren't really memories but they're 
things that I'm showing him that he, he is, has some sense of her. And I do the same with my sister. So I find that really beautiful and, and a, and a good way to, to, you know, kind of see how he reacts to her. It's really cute. I mean, he's like cracking up. <laughs> and that's how we live on too, is through the legacies and mm-hmm. stories and how people's, I mean, I say we, but I mean, we, we, we will also be a story someday to somebody yeah. else. Yeah. So continuing that relationship and that legacy mm-hmm. through you sharing their stories with your son, that is, that is a way of maintaining their legacy uh, yeah. alive. Now you mentioned that you feel Jackie helped you write the book. Mm-hmm. So now take us into how it is you started writing the book. When in your grief journey did you start writing the book? Okay. So it took me a while to write about grief. When my mom was sick, I didn't write anything about grief. And I never wrote about Jackie of all the, all the years when she was struggling. And I, you know, I'm somebody who I've been writing personal essays for years. And so it's, and, and you would think I would write about my relationship with Jackie, but I just didn't know how. And I also just always felt like, oh, there has to be a reason. I'm not just going to be like, Hey world, I have a sister who, you know, who's an alcoholic and it's hard. Like I, I felt like there, there has to be a reason. So I would think about it over the years and then just always say, nah, not going to do it. But it was, so Jackie died March 1st, 2021. And so that summer is when I first got the idea for the book. I had written two essays about grief previous to that, about about a year after my mom died, I wrote my first essay about grief. And that felt like, okay, I think I can like write again. Like I can be creative again. And I noticed with those essays that people really commented, they sent emails, like they really wanted to share their stories. And so that struck me that people, and I think coming through a pandemic, right? I mean, Everyone. Collective, yes, collective, collective grief, which yeah. you also talk about other aspects of even when a somebody that's famous dies or things oh, like that too. Mm-hmm. Yes, here they are now. They're <laughs> the ones saying both are here. Cute. <laughs> okay. So, um, so yeah. So basically, I had written two essays, and and that struck me. But then after Jackie died, I had read some grief books after my mom died, and I loved them. But then when Jackie died, it with this double, you know, it's like this double blow. And I just wasn't finding comfort in like beautiful sayings about grief or things like that. Like I just, it just wasn't working for me. And so I started thinking, well, I want, like, I'm a journalist, so I want to find out more about grief because it is such a part of my life now. So it kind of, that was kind of the initial seed of like, maybe I can try to understand what grief is a little bit more. And so that summer I talked to my agent because we'd worked on a book several years before. And I said, I, I, you know, I want to, I think I want to write a grief book. And she said, well, there's a lot, but maybe write a proposal. Cause usually with nonfiction, you have to write a proposal and that will be what the publishers buy. And then you write the book, unless you're like Prince Harry, who could probably just spit on a piece of paper and <laughs> get a book deal. So I wrote the proposal and she loved it. And then, and then it sold, but that was that summer after Jackie died, which is pretty soon after losing somebody. But I think I just had been through so much with my mom and I just, I felt ready and I, and this is another thing that really helped is when Jackie was sober that year and we would talk all the time. I, I said to her on the phone, I said, Jackie, how would you feel if I wrote about our relationship and your alcoholism? Um, and being the sweet person she was, she's like, of course, she's like, I think it could really help people. So I had that in my mind. And I think that gave me the permission to write about her and about us because she had, when she was completely sober said, of course. And so I think that that helps as well. Yeah, you had, that's why you probably feel she helped you through mm-hmm. that yeah. process of yeah. writing as well. You had her blessing. Yeah. 
Now, the cover of your, of your book, So Sorry for Your Loss, has a casserole. Yeah. And I let's talk about that because that would go into the part of the, the bucket of KFC. Yeah. So the, the, all the things and how you came to decide that that was going to be a, the cover. So the journey behind choosing a casserole <laughs> and the title of and your the book. Title. The title came first. I knew the minute... I remember that summer, like the minute an idea of a grief book popped into my head, I was like, it has to be called So Sorry for Your Loss. Like there was no doubt in my mind because it was a phrase that, that had initially made me so angry. And, you know, when my mom died and people, you know, everybody says, so sorry for your loss, condolences. They write it on threads. They, you know, like, and it just, it felt so, it didn't reflect our feelings. And I don't thought, you know, people just don't know what to say in grief. And so that's why we go to these you know, expressions, but it just made me so angry. And every time I saw it, I was like, oh, it's so like cold and robotic. And I really appreciated the people that were like, oh my gosh, this is so tragic. My heart's breaking. <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, that feels a little bit better to me. Like if somebody would have said to me, this is the most devastating, like horrible thing, I would have been like, yeah, it is. Right. So, but I think people just, nobody's going to say that to a grieving person. Like you don't want to upset us, but but then I kind of came to calm down about so sorry for your loss because realizing that grief is hard to talk about, right? And so, but I knew that I wanted that to be the title for those two reasons that I like hated it, but then came to be like, okay, people just don't know how to talk about grief. So that was always there. And then the cover was actually the publisher's idea to do the casserole because it's such a symbol of grief, um, especially in America, but I think pretty much everywhere. Um, and if it's not casserole, it's another dish, you know, whatever it's going to be. But, um, so that was their idea. My only input with that was, um, it's like two hands handing over a casserole. So at first there was no nail polish on the nails. And I was like, I'm a Texas girl. <laughs> Y'all got to paint the nails. So that was my input. Um, but yeah, I thought they did a great job and it's just such a universal, like symbol of grief. And I did want it to be kind of brightly colored. I didn't want it to be, you know, dark and all of that. Cause the book has humor in it. So that's how those two things came about. I, I thought of you just a couple of weeks ago, or at least your title of the and the bucket of KFC, because recently a friend um, had her her husband died, and I was like, okay, what do we take? What do we take? I'm like, oh, I wonder if a bucket of KFC. <laughs> <laughs> so in that whole process, you have a fridge full mm -hmm. for you guys. This is when your mom died, full mm -hmm. of different uh, food soups. And sometimes you really don't have time. So yeah. tell us why the, why <laughs> that bucket of KFC and who was the one that brought that bucket of KFC? I love the bucket of KFC. And, you know, I've actually, I told the woman, it was one of my mom's best friends and one of my best friend's mom. So our neighbors, but I told her, I was like, if KFC gets an uptick in sales, like it may be because of the story. But, um, so it was actually during hospice and people started bringing us stuff during the hospice week, but you know, the hard, one of the hard things in grief is like having to have guests or give your energy to people who want to come over and talk, you know, that's really hard. Um, you know, and people, or, or when people ask things of you, like, what should I bring? Like, that's just bring something, you know? So, but I didn't realize that until one day I was sitting there with my sister and the doorbell rang and, um, this woman, Meredith, who I've, you know, grew up with was standing there. And she's this woman that like, I read the book, like I think of her as like crystal chandeliers and like, you know, fun champagne. And she's standing at our door with like this bucket of Kentucky fried chicken. And she just hands it to us. And she goes, you don't have to say anything. Don't invite me in. I just love you. And I'm here for you. And then she basically like ran off. Like, 
And my sister and I were like, okay. And we just went inside and we hadn't been eating a lot. Like it was, you know, it was hospice week. It was pretty wrenching, but we went in and we devoured that KFC. And it was, I swear, I know this sounds dramatic, but it was like breathing life into my soul, like all the grease. And it was, you can eat it cold. You can have it in the fridge, take it out, eat it cold. Amazing. It was so You think you have to be so elaborate yet. Here, what you found comfort was in a it was fast of food, yeah. fast food fried chicken. Yeah, and and the fact that she just dro- she didn't tell us she was coming. She just literally dropped it off and left. And I just I just loved that. I thought it was a really kind gesture of her. And you know, people don't people can understand that. Like it's sometimes just drop something off. You don't have to ask much questions. And, and the same even with the text. Like right there, she was stopping by. You don't have to invite me in. Here it is. I, I try to do the same sometimes with messages. Just wanted, yep. no need to respond yeah. to this text. Just wanted you to know I'm thinking of you. Yes. Or some, especially if you don't live near the person mm-hmm. that is grieving, little things like that. Yeah. But again, without them feeling this responsibility mm-hmm. of letting you in or yeah. responding to a text or responding to a call, but knowing that you're there. And the part that you say, like, what should we bring? Sometimes narrowing down options, mm-hmm. if by chance you are, would you like me to come Monday or Tuesday? Yeah. Or, you know, can I Making come? And if so Monday or Tuesday, it's something yeah. that's a quick decision. You don't have to think so much because again, it is so overwhelming when you're in the middle of it. You really can't make too many choices. Right. You're, you're already dealing with so much. Yeah. Now, regarding your book, what do you hope readers take from this book? What do you, what is your wish in putting this book out there? What is your hope that that readers take from it? I think there's probably two things because I, I see the book. I wrote the book for kind of two different kinds of people, I guess, like people that live with deep grief and then people that are kind of paralyzed by grief that maybe don't have it in their life yet because we'll all have it eventually, but who don't know what to say and don't know what to do. So I wanted it to be for them too, because I think grief can be so intimidating. We don't talk about it enough, but thanks to people like you or, you know, having conversations is helpful, but in general, people really kind of clam up about it. So my hope for people who have grief in their life is that I hope it brings comfort, you know, and I hope it brings even maybe some laughter and joy, even though there's tough stuff in the book, but I I wanted to be honest and raw, but also have humor in there. So I hope it brings comfort and helps people feel seen in their own grief. And I've gotten messages from people that say, you know, thank you for writing about hospice or thank you for making me feel that it's okay that it's been five years and I still cry sometimes. Like I think some people are so hard on themselves to be like, well, why am I still so upset? It's been five years or five months or whatever that it's, it's okay. Like there's not a one way it's going to go. And you know, it's that I hope that people take comfort in that. And then for people who you know, don't have grief yet, but maybe they have a coworker or a spouse or somebody, maybe it helps them understand it a little bit more, um, would be a hope. Thank you. Thank you, Dina. Now, Dina, before we wrap up, please let me know if there's something I have not asked that you want to share with the listeners. Um, let's see. I think, I mean, that's a lot of my story. Um, <laughs> and more of it, of course, in the book. And we'll, yes, we'll talk about how, how they can reach it. I think, no, I mean, your questions were amazing. I'm trying to think if there's anything. I don't think so. I mean, we, you know, the book does get into collective grief, which I think now at this point, of course, in the world is obviously on all of our minds. Um, okay. So I think that's important too, is just that, you know, I think people can feel kind of isolated in, in their grief, especially when the news is so terrible, just to understand that like you're not alone, you know, and they were all kind of, together in it, I think would be important. 
Thank you. Now, how can people get your book? Where can it be found? And even also, how can people get in touch with you if they want you on their podcasts or any other platform? So the book, um, it's out in the US and the UK. So you can get it at any bookstore. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble, um, pretty much anywhere books are sold. So if you can go to your indie bookstore and tell them to get it, that would be great. And then I'm online. So I'm on um, my website's dinagashmanwrites.com. So I post all of my freelance pieces and essays and things like that. And I write about grief pretty often, even though I keep trying to not (laughs) write about grief. I keep writing about grief somehow. And I'm on um, Instagram. I think it's just dgashman and then Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it, threads and all those places. So if you just put my name in, all that stuff will pop up. So just or on your website, are there ways to link yes, to yeah. all the social media? Okay. Yes, so go to her website, Dina Gashman writes, is that, yes. is that the name? And then from there you can find all the social media and it will be at, in the show notes as right. well. Dina, it was an honor to have you on Thank the you. podcast. Thank you for sharing Jackie's life and your mom's life. What your mom's, what's your mom's name? Cece is what she went by, but what's your mom's name? Cindy. Cindy mm-hmm. and Cindy's life as well with us and your grief journey as well as the tools you use to navigate and most importantly your book with our listeners and hopefully now there won't just be listeners there'll be readers of your book (laughs) so thank you again Dina thank you so much for having me thanks for you know all that you do just to have conversations about grief it's really important Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, If you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.